So often we see nonprofits that will take net assets, oh, take money, right? Whether it's net assets, or, you know, but take money and invest it. Okay, what's the strategy? It is, you know, they have one strategy here for investments. They have their net assets over here, but they haven't mixed. And and I think our relationship uh, that we've been really able to help bring to some of our clients is the relationship between the CPA and our understanding of the net assets in the wealth management piece. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. There we go. So our objectives today, uh, you know, to understand what the components of net assets are. What are we? When we talk about net assets, what do we mean? Uh, and this is one of the sessions at the beginning when I gave you that challenge, at the, uh, challenge number one this morning, right? Was to listen to every session and find the nugget within uh, the, the session that applies to you. So this is something that you know you may be sitting there saying, you know what? I have negative equity, so I, I, I can zone out here. I don't really need to listen to that. But but. But, but as a nonprofit, as any agency, any business, you know, you, you need to have equity. You need to have working capital. You need, uh, you know, so, so maybe you might not be into one of the situations where we'll talk about where you have enough that you can build your own endowment, right? Maybe you're still struggling to get that working capital, but it's important because you need it. So you can't, you can't go through life saying, yeah, we're in a negative, but that's okay. You know, you need to have it. You need to come up with a strategy. And I know it's tough, but, you know, it's so, so I think this applies to everyone, uh, no matter where you are. So once we understand what the net assets are, the next thing is, what are the, you know, and we, we call it the bucket, and, and uh, Joel Aronson wrote in, uh, a nice article and in, in kind of talks about the bucket system. It, you know, so when we talk about buckets, you know, different pieces of net assets, so uh, determining what type of net assets or buckets you need to have as an organization. Then we, then we need, once we identify those different buckets, we're going to talk about uh, you know, what's the appropriate level that you need in each one of those buckets. Uh, and then, then we're going to go kind of what I kind of envision as the CPA side or the accountant side, and then we're going to connect that to the investment management side. So now we have the buckets, we've identified what we need. Okay, now what are we going to do to invest these so that we have the least risk but gain what we need to get out of these buckets? So uh, that's where Phil's going to come in. So the first thing I want to uh, talk about is what are net assets. So net assets, you know, we, we, it's a lot of different things. It's our assets, less our liabilities, equal our net assets, what we're left with. Uh, net worth, you know, if in a, in individually you hear the, the term net worth, it's our, in the for-profit world, we hear about it as equity. So, you know, but it, it's basically, once we take all of our assets and all of our liabilities, what are we left with? And that's our, that's our net assets, our equity. So then once we, once we kind of identify that, it's okay, now yeah, I, I know what our net assets are, I know what you're talking about. From there, what do we need to know about them? Because there's a lot of different things, uh, you know, the, the, the net assets tell a lot of different stories. And they could, you know, we could have $100 million net assets, and it could be good or it could be bad, right? Uh, you know, I guess $100 million is always a good thing, but, but, um, but, it, but, the, but, but we need to kind of dissect that and understand before we start getting into the investment piece. What, is the, what are our net assets? What do we need to know about them? Uh, first of all, we need to know uh, whether or not our net assets are restricted or unrestricted. So in restricted net assets, we have two pieces. We have temporarily restricted, which could be a time restriction. Someone gives us uh, uh, money for a specific time. Uh, it could be a purpose restricted. Uh, means we have to accom accomplish a specific project before we can earn it. Or, or uh, so those are all gonna be earned eventually, or it could be permanently restricted. And permanently restricted money is our endowment money, which we can never touch the corpus. 
so those are those are all nice to have, uh, especially endowment money. But that's not what we're necessarily talking about right here today. Uh, the piece that you know we're really going to focus on is our unrestricted piece, the piece that has no restrictions, right? So that's that's uh, you know tells a lot about an agency. When we look at our unrestricted, then we need to kind of dissect that even more. So when we, we, when we have our unrestricted net assets, we have two different pieces. We have liquid net assets and we have non-liquid uh, net assets. And I always like to, to use the example here of, of you go out to lunch with your friend who's the millionaire and uh, you, know, you sit down, he's, you, know, you know his net worth is over a million dollars, you sit down and he goes to buy lunch and the check comes and he slides it over to you. Well, the reason he slides it over to you is because he has no, you know, he's worth a million dollars but it's all tied up in a building. So he can't pay for lunch because he has no liquid equity. So when you look at your net assets and you look at your, un, uh, specifically your net, unrestricted net assets, you need to be able to carve that out. And what's our liquid working capital? and what's not liquid, uh, what's invested in capital. We're not gonna pay payroll with the equity that we have in our building unless we go and we borrow against it, right? That's always an, op uh, an option. But you know, when we're talking about liquid uh, or net assets, we're gonna continue to focus on the liquid piece of our net assets. So when we look at uh, liquid uh, net assets, there are a few different things. We look at our working capital. You know, you could have a board designated net asset. You could have reserves. So those are all types of things that you're gonna do with your liquid net, unrestricted net assets. So now that we know, we've defined that, we've kind of segregated out what we're talking about today. We're gonna to talk about our liquid unrestricted net assets. Now, why do we need them? What do we do with them? And, and like I said at the beginning, okay, I don't have any, so this doesn't apply to me, so let's just zone out. Um, you know, so, the, so, so, sorry, uh, there we go. So it does apply to you because every organization, as I said, needs to have working capital. And if you don't have it, you need to build it. And if you, if you don't know, you know, the, the only way that you're gonna build liquid working capital is through profits. Uh, so, you know, and, and I know a lot of you are struggling with profits and how do you how do you generate that? But again, it's got to be tied to your strategic mission. It's got to be tied to your budgeting. In uh, in you know, it's an item that you have to have to budget for uh, is for capital uh, and to build that capital to the appropriate level. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a little bit. But when I look at unrestricted net assets and what do we need them for? You know, there's a number of net assets that, that we can that we have to think about, and this is kind of in the order uh, that we've defined here, in the order that you kind of need to think about your net assets, right? Because we're not going to go. And a lot of times, it's always funny because you know we'll see boards that are establishing endowment funds, but have no liquid working capital, and and you know you you know that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. So in my opinion, you always need to have. You know, when you establish your net assets, this is the order that it should go in, right? So the first thing you want to do is have working capital. This is what's funding the business. This is what's, uh, you know, you, you're paying your bills day to day with. And you have to understand how much do I need in every organ? You know, because at board meetings, that's a question we always get: how many, how much, uh, how many months in our net assets? How many months of expenses should we have in our net assets? What's the right level of working capital? And I always say it's, it's different for every single organization. Now the standard is, you know, the standard answer is, has always been three to six months, and I'm sure most of you have heard that number. You know, kind of coming out of that last downturn that we had, that three to six months has turned more into, you know, two to four months, but you know, three to six is somewhere that we always like to, like to look at it at. But 
it depends upon the organization, and every organization is different. I'm going to give you an example. Um, if you have, you know, uh, how many uh, state-funded organizations that are billing the state on a contract basis? Yes, so a lot of you here. So the way, you know, so so this is a good example because the way that that works typically, and I know we have ready pays and all that, but but typically, you incur expenses for 30 days, then you accumulate all those expenses and you turn around and you build the Commonwealth. So now we're kind of looking at 45 days out. The Commonwealth then takes you know, 30 days to pay or so, um, you know, if we're lucky. <laughs> I got a lot of laughs there. But, but just say for this example, 30 days. So now we're looking at about 75 days that you've from the first time that you've incurred an expense to the time you get paid. So when you say, how much working capital do I need? Well, in that situation, you need at least 75 days worth of working capital because you need to fund those expenses before you get paid, right? Now, on the flip side, if you're a private school, right? We have any private schools here? We have a few private schools here. So most private schools get their tuition all up front. So before the year even starts, they're getting all of their tuition for the year. So most of their money that they're gonna need for the year, most of their revenue, they've collected before day one of the school year. So they're not necessarily floating expenses. So a private school could theoretically have less than that 75 days that a state-funded organization would need. So again, it's a matter of looking at your cash flow, looking at what you need um, in, in, in how your streams of revenue are coming in. So that's our working capital. And whenever I go over an audit of financial statements, I think that's always the most important piece is what is your working capital? How do you define your working capital? The next piece is operating reserves. So we may have seasonality of cash flow that we need to account for. For example, we, we may have a museum that in the winter time, you know, an outdoor museum that in the winter time or an outside venue, in the winter time, we don't have a lot of attendance. So, you know, kind of come May, that's a big, or April and May, well, not this May, but uh, you, you know, typically that's a big time of year. So we have to fund that cash flow because, you know, in the winter we don't have many attendees and that's our mainstream of revenue. So again, seasonality. So, so building up reserves for seasonality. Uh, the next thing is unfunded uh, or, or program reserves. Uh, you know, a lot of times we'll call this the rainy day fund or the slush fund, and I know a lot of you have had those over years, and we have you know, some organizations that have set those up and, and have been great because in, the in funded uncertainties, you know, times of uncertain funding, they were able to, to draw upon that. And what that allowed them to do is if they lost a major funder, they were able to still carry out the same level of programming that they always had uh, without, you know, even after that funding had stopped without cutting services right away. So that really gave them a runway to change their mission, not their mission, but to change their approach to programming, to potentially get new funding uh, and to look at it that way. So a program reserve is another way that people will uh, sometimes look at their, their reserves. Uh, then capital reserves. You know, so, so we have our working capital, we have our, reserve, our operating reserves, our program reserves. We own a building, we might need to have a capital reserve because at some point, more than likely, you know, that roof is gonna go, the major system is gonna go, you know, something's gonna be outside of our normal budget that we need to spend some significant money on. So people will set up a capital reserve. So people will say, well, how much of a capital reserve do I need? Typically, organizations will look and get a capital needs study and say, okay, well, in the next 10 years or the next 15 years, you're gonna to need to replace a roof in 10 years and a boiler in 15. So they'll set aside money to start to build that reserve up now so in year 10, they have enough for the roof 
Um, so, so that's a capital reserve. And then some other, you know, uh, uh, we've seen organizations set up research and development reserves. And when I say that, I'm talking about uh, you know, at the beginning I said it's it's tough to make a profit sometimes. You know, if you're a state-funded state-funded organization, it's tough. If you have donors, you know, in a down economy, it's tough. So what organizations have been doing is thinking outside of the box. What can we do that's not typical, that's not being funded by the state, that we can generate other sources of income streams? And having some type of research and development uh, reserve kind of gives an organization that type of opportunity to, to take a stab at something and see if it fails. Just like uh, a former Attorney General, General Coakley said, you know, uh, a pilot program, look at it at a small level and it gives you some seed money to do that. Uh, and then the last type of unrestricted reserve that you would set up is a functionalized endowment. So if you're lucky enough to have that, you know, th th that's uh, kind of the last piece. But all of these are kind of thinking strategically about your net assets. So if you look at your net assets, you need to decide what types of net assets do I need. Obviously, as I said, the first thing you need to do is have working capital, and then you decide after that, what do I do? Uh, how do I break this out? And you know, we've been fortunate enough to work with some great organizations that have been very successful in both fundraising and, and uh, other streams of revenue that have had the opportunity to have excess reserves, if you will. Uh, excess besides just the normal working capital. And when we look at the financial statements and we say, okay, you have, you know, as I said before, maybe three to six months is the, the standard set of months in net assets. Well, if we're up to, you know, 12 months or plus, what do we do with those reserves? And, and you know, so that's when you start to think about these other reserves because again, it will tell the story of, to, the, to the reader of your financial statements what you're doing with these. If I start an organization with 24 months of reserves, a donor might say, well, why do they need my money if they already have 24 months of reserves? Well, if you go through and you look and they have strategic, strategically uh, set aside these reserves for, for specific purposes like we've outlined here, well, they're thinking about it. So maybe they do need our money. Maybe they still, you know, it's a well-run, well-thought-out organization that, um, you know, has thought about the reserves. In a, you know, when we get into it, Phil's going to talk about how we how we uh, invest those reserves to again achieve our mission. You know, how do we build reserves? The only way to build reserves, as I said, is through our surpluses. Uh, I think a lot of times when uh, organizations get into doing a, a strategic plan, one of the key things that they miss is tying the strategic plan to building reserves and how much do we need. Uh, you know, a lot of times we're so mission focused, our strategic plans focus on that. It doesn't focus on what we need for reserves or what we should have for reserves. So that's another component that you wanna, uh, you know, think about when you do a strategic plan. In uh, uh, you know, as I said before, we always say the financial statements should tell the story. You know, have the financial statements tell the story of what our reserves are gonna be. When you look at your reserves, don't just have one unrestricted net asset number. Tell the story within the financial statements. Here's the different components. Here's what they're gonna be used for. The notes are a key place to, to outline that. Uh, and we've done, again, we've done that very successfully with some organizations uh, that have some great reserves and continue to get great reserves. And you know, I like to think that a part of it is uh, not only their great mission, but the way that they present themselves to the outside world. 
So I want to go through a couple case studies before Phil starts talking. And these are organizations, you know, th these are some case studies that we've worked with. And this first one is, is a, great, um, a great example. It was a client of ours, it's an audit client that we've worked with. Uh, they're in the publication business, it's a nonprofit, they're in the publication business. And as you know, publications, you know, people don't get paper, ma paper magazines anymore. Uh, and it's, so their publication revenue has been declining. And that was always a large source of revenue for them. Uh, they had built up some significant reserves from kind of the heyday of publications, and they had about $8 million of reserves set up. And every year, we, we always talked about it. Well, what are you going to do with the reserve? You have $8 million. What are they for? What are, you know, and no one can have necessarily answer the question. And then to top it off, they had this $8 million, but then they just had it invested. So we always try to get them to understand how, what's the tie between the investment strategy and your net assets. Because they had working capital invested in the stock market. And another thing I was, you know, some, you know, some people who work with me will probably tell you to hear this, but the other example I always use is, you know, personally, you wouldn't put next month's mortgage payment in the stock market. So why would an organ why would a nonprofit put money that they need for working capital in the stock market? So you need to think of that. And, and as, when Phil goes through his piece, you'll see, you know, we, we talk about um, you know, if, if you have an endowment, yes, you can invest that for the long term. If you're off 20 years old, you can invest in your 401k for the long term. When you're 60 years old, you're going to have a much different investment strategy than the 20 year old. Just like if you're an organization, if you have your working, uh, uh, sorry, kind of like an operating reserve, that's going to be invested much differently than your endowment account. So we, 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 we kind of sat down with this client and got them to think about it that way. So they, then what they did is they took their $8 million of reserves that was just invested, and they built these different things. So they, they put $3.4 million into an operating budget because they knew uh, operating reserve. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. They had a $3.4 .8, million operating budget. That was the size of their organization. Uh, 28 months of expenses in their net assets, so very well. Uh, you know, very good situation for net assets. So then what they did is they said, okay, we want three months worth of working capital. So they carved out $900,000. Then they said, okay, well, we need this program reserve because we want to, the board had this desire to fund an annual award. So they took a million two because they said, this is how much we need for the award. And we said, okay, based upon that, if we invest it this way, we need to put about a million two in there. So they took out a million two into a program reserve. They bought a facility. And it was brand new, but they said, hey, in 10 years, we're going to need uh, you know, our new roof. So they started out with $100,000, and they're going to fund that every year with the depreciation expense. Uh, so that's going to be invested so that they can you know, buy their new roof in 10 years. And then what they did is they took the $6 million to function as an endowment. And, and what that is really going to do is, as I said, their revenue is decreasing, and every year they have a, a, a funding gap in their budget. And they're not going to make it up through increased in publications because they're, you know, they're at a, they kind of hit their max. So they know that, and this is, this is the cost of running the business, so they know they have an inherent you know, gap every year. So they said, this is how much we need to, to fund that gap. So they put $6 million into an endowment to fund operations each year. So Phil's, this is an example Phil's going to talk about. Um, but what they did is then they took in, they took each one of those buckets and invested it. So he'll talk a little bit about that. The second case study is a nonprofit that we had. $700,000 annual operating budget, so a very small organization. Uh, back in 2012, they had 10 months of expenses in their net assets. 
they were losing money. Uh, you can see it went down to eight months, five months, three months. <laughs> all along that time, uh, they had all of their funds invested in the stock market. So all of their reserves, they had invested in the stock market. Every year we told them, you know, you gotta kind of carve out some of those reserves because you're gonna need it for working capital. Just like my example, you know, you don't put next month's rent payment in the uh, stock market. That's what they did. They came to a point in 2015 where they needed that money and they had to take it out, they had to liquidate it at the wrong time. So strategically, they weren't tying their goals to their investment account. Um, and then the third uh, case study is we had a nonprofit with about a $20 million budget. Uh, they had $8.4 million of operating reserves. They had a small board endowment and they had a, a, a general endowment. Um, and, you know, so five and a half months of, of expenses were in the net assets. And they didn't need that much of, of net assets uh, you know, to run the business, but it was all in cash and cash equivalent. So the question is, was that working the most efficient for them? So again, whenever we look at these reserves, we're talking about what do you need to run your business and how do we get the excess money to work efficiently at, at the lowest risk possible? Uh, so again, taking a look at the investments and the strategy on how to do that, because at the end of the day, what are we all trying to do? We're trying to make the most of our resources to better the community that we're serving. Uh, so you know, that's what we're trying to tie together here. Uh, so I'm gonna hand it over to Phil, and he's gonna kind of take what we just talked about as far as the net assets and talk about how he's worked with some of the organizations to then think about how you invest that strategically. Thank you, John. Welcome, everybody. It's always good to see new faces and some familiar faces, too. <clears throat> we have the pleasure in our practice of working with some of you individually um, and some of you as an organization. And, and really, this topic here, as John uh, briefly mentioned before when he tried to paint the analogy of an individual and how they would strategically think about their family assets, and how they would strategically invest those assets relative to the goal in mind, it's really not dramatically different when you think about your organization's assets. You apply, we apply the same overall concepts <clears throat> to whether we're working with an individual or whether we're working for an organization. So when we, um, I'm gonna back up just for a second here. Oops. So the title of my actually segment of the presentation is Managing Net Assets in the Face of Financial Market Volatility. And financial market volatility is a permanent condition in financial markets, right? We, we might think that it's more volatile now than it's ever been, and that's probably true, but there's never gonna be a situation where there's no volatility. So when we talk about this concept of managing net assets, we're always trying to answer the one question. How do we implement a disciplined, goal-oriented allocation strategy, investment allocation strategy, to both preserve and protect these assets that you've worked so hard to, um, to build. And how do we do that um, in, with the least amount of risk? How, 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 do, how can we possibly take all of these uh, factors in the market, put them all together and say, you know, let's, let's align um, what the market is giving us to your, to your longer-term goals or, or even your shorter-term goals. 
So I wanted to go back to a slide. If you remember, John talked about each of the different you know, working capital, operating reserves, program reserves, and so forth. Each of those areas has their own unique strategy, time horizon, perhaps a different set of risks associated with each of them. And our challenge really is to obviously divide those up and determine really how much each of those um, really uh, involve and then you know, design a investment strategy around it. But it's made quite more difficult in today's environment because it used to be, especially when interest rates were uh, much higher than they are now, you could take your so-called excess reserves and just probably park it in a money market or a CD or something and maybe get seven, eight, or 9% and really not take uh, much risk at all. Your job was made much easier in that respect because you really didn't have to take a critical look at what is your true working capital level? What are your true needs in an intermediate or longer term basis? So today's financial markets, because they're yielding not only unpredictable returns in the equity markets, combined with the low interest rate environment, it's really creating this um, unique challenge of really putting, sharpening the pencil and determining what your actual you know, buckets, what we call buckets, um, or all those areas of your overall reserves that you have unique goals for. So again, this, what I would consider you know, bucket system, you can also call it multiple objectives, uh, multiple um, areas of your net assets that have unique purposes. And those are the three overall um, general areas that you know, if you can take your net assets and divide them and then really begin to determine what each of those represent in terms of objectives and risks, that's usually the first step. And what we're able to do is we're able to work closely with, with John and others um, in, the, in the AFCPAs and their teams who have the knowledge of you as clients, um, knowledge of your business, and are able to define spending policies and investment policies that are unique to you, and then we can apply our approach to investment and portfolio management to be consistent with that spending policy and investment policy. So we think we have some unique synergies there that, that help us to address that. So again, at the risk of repeating, you know, some of the some of the elements of the process, you know, we we this environment forces us to really strictly define the proper level of working capital and other reserves. What truly is that? If the working capital needs to be three to six months, well, do we have more than three to six months that are available? Are there other purposes for those excess funds that we can, um, that we can begin to look at some different investment strategies around that versus a working capital investment strategy would simply be, you know, let's put it under the mattress so that we can pay our, pay our current bills and to, and to manage operations. So again, you know, the functioning as endowment funds, you know, typically that means longer term, you know, what truly is, uh, what truly are our longer term reserves if we have them. How do we go about building up to that point where we do in fact have uh, longer term reserves? And that third point really is, can't emphasize that enough, I know John will agree, um, the importance of a um, updating and refining your spending policies and the associated um, investment policies with them because then that really then allows you to determine well what is the rate of return that we need to earn on this to meet this spending goal that we have. Let's say for example the spending goal is 4% of whatever that, that level of assets um, is. 
Um, well, then, you know, what is, if it's 4%, well, you have to take, need to take into account inflation, and then maybe you're paying an advisor to manage those funds. What truly is the preferred rate of return that allows you to, on a long-term basis, meet that goal? We do the same thing, again, with individual clients. You know, what do I need to, what do, I, what do my investments need to earn so that I can retire comfortably and I can spend X amount per year on my retirement? Well, there are certain tactics and strategies that we would employ with a given preferred rate of return. So that determination of the risk profile, we would essentially start with, you know, what rate of return would we like to earn on this? And then we sort of back into really what the mix of assets that are required to um, effectively meet that, to effectively meet that goal. And so then that's gonna determine, you know, that mix of assets may be more um, risk-oriented than not because your goal is longer. So therefore we can afford to take on a little bit more volatility and risk, but it's all dictated by the type of return or the level of return that we, that we need. So that targeted level of return really provides us with a guide for us to um, begin using a lot of the robust analytical tools we have for portfolio optimization and to really determine this mix of assets and what is the ideal mix of assets. So what do we, what do we mean by that when we say, how do we put all of this together so that we can achieve a certain goal, whether it's short-term, intermediate, or long-term? What is the mix of assets that will give us that desired rate of return with the least amount of risk? So preserving, protecting, and growing are the three major objectives. So we put, we always refer to these mix of assets, the individual assets, as asset classes. And here is sort of a list from lowest risk to highest risk of many, if not all, of the asset classes that we work with um, to design portfolios. <clears throat> we use, once we have those different buckets um, defined and spending policies and investment policies associated with each one, we then um, will determine what mix of these individual asset classes are appropriate for that, for that goal. Each one of these asset classes has their own expected rate of return and expected volatility. And when we use the word expected, what we mean by it is we, you know, we obviously use prior history, but we also use some capital market assumptions about what each of these asset classes will do in the future. And then, you know, obviously try to determine, you know, what is the, what is the optimal mix of that, which will give you um, the least amount of volatility as we go forward. So we use sort of an art, or a scientific approach to determine that, but there's also a little bit of art involved as well, because some of you may have investment policies and say, you know, we don't want to have commodities, which is a very volatile asset class, or we may not want to have um, international equity emerging markets, or perhaps you may have some restrictions surrounding um, investments in certain types of things like you know tobacco and alcohol and things like that. So you lean more towards a socially responsible area of investing. So it's taking the science, but also you know designing it and customizing it to to meet to meet your investment policy as well. So one of those cases that John referred to earlier, these are sort of the um, ways we implemented that particular case. Um, they had about $8 million in total, total uh, net at and total reserves, and we strictly defined each of them 
And I would say that probably 65% of our time was working with, with John and his team to really make sure we had a good understanding of what each of these buckets were and um, really what the purpose of them, um, each of, of each of these buckets are, were, and also what they needed to earn in terms of a preferred rate of return. So these first two on this page were sort of the longer term objectives that we were able to carve out um, of these total assets. And as you can see on the first one, the program fund, we said, well, we, you know, our spending policy here is 4% of the, of the market value can be used as an appropriation to support the various programs. So as you can see, we took one year's worth of spending appropriation, 48,000, and we just set it aside in a stable value fund. You know, pretty basic, not earning much of anything these days. But there it was, you know, not, not, not exposed to any volatility whatsoever um, to fund one year's worth of uh, needs out of, this, out of this particular bucket. And then we designed a, an investment allocation strategy for the rest of it. And as you can see here, the amount of, of funds dedicated to more stable value or low volatility investments or bonds was about half of the portfolio, 43%. But there's still enough growth built in such that that 4% spending policy can be met also to keep pace with inflation and also some other expenses associated with managing the portfolio. Same thing with the next, with the next area, which although that might have a longer term um, objective, functioning as an endowment, you can think of that as more longer term, we applied the same concept here and as you can see, you know, we set aside um, a annual appropriation um, in stable value, and the rest of it was allocated, obviously similar to the other uh, bucket, but we separated it out because it had it has its unique has its unique objective and a unique function. And then these two are the more shorter term or intermediate term um, buckets. We have the operating reserve, which is all in short term government bonds. Uh, not, not like a money market in that you know, that principle is not always going to be stable, but certainly at the lowest level of volatility short of a money market fund, that's always in that, always in that part of the portfolio. And then the building reserve is, the, um, is more of an intermediate term um, objective. And as you can see in the allocation, bonds is 23% and stable value in this case is 33. So over half of the portfolio is in stable, is in stable value. So again, wanted to illustrate sort of that one case that John presented on a big picture and how did we really specifically implement it and really the message that we would like to convey is that most of the time is spent on strategically thinking about your overall reserves, dividing them up into their various um, objectives and purposes and then designing unique um, allocation strategies to meet the objective of each reserve. Because going back to what John mentioned about telling a story, do your financial statements um, demonstrate that you're strategically thinking about the management of net assets? That's important. And then also to have investment strategies in place that are also strategic to tell and enhance the story that you're already telling. So um, with that um, concludes my piece of this. And if there's any questions, I'd be happy to, to answer. Yes. Right. 
Yes, but then also your, your liquid net assets that are, have a longer term nature to them, right? So you ask, you have your invested capital like your building and your property, but then you also have you know, your longer term, your, your liquid assets that are really for a longer term purpose or that you can obviously, it's in excess of your working capital and other reserves. Right, it's not just tied up, it's not really just tied up in uh, what investments you have or what right. actual cash you have, it's... it's That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, but I think one of the key things you want to do is when you look at your net assets is you actually want to carve out that the, the, the equity that you have that's invested in your property and equipment because again, you're not going to be able to invest that because that's tied up in your brick and mortar. So you, you first, before you even start, you know, the first thing you need to do when you look at your net assets is carve out that piece because you're not going to have anything to invest that. You're not going to pay payroll with that. You know, so carve out that as the non-operating, I mean, sorry, it's the non-liquid piece. And then what we're left with is the liquid working capital. And that's when you go to what, what, what Phil's been talking about. Right. And if you have a big piece that represents that, then that does require, let's say, a building reserve so that you can obviously keep that investment you know, intact and sort of, you know, kind of keeping it, keeping it up to date and so forth. So that would then lead to a need that you would have with your liquid reserves to help fund and protect that longer term fixed asset. Yes. What's the advantage of looking at this from a net assets perspective as opposed to the cash that we have? What does that add to the process? Well, I mean, I, I always look at cash. I mean, ca cash is at the point in time. Your net assets is what you really have. I mean, if you, you, you know, you could be looking at it at June 30th. Um, and I'll give a good example uh, in Jan's from a charter school. You know, two years ago, the state didn't pay you when they were supposed to on June 30th. So your cash position at that point would have been very, very low because it was all in receivables, right? But your net assets is what the real equity that you have in the company is. So, so the net assets is kind of the real number, the cash is the point in time. So it could fluctuate a lot between, you know, one day versus two days later. So that's why we, you know, we, you know, and I know management always looks at, you know, most management organizations, you know, groups look at the cash on hand, you know, as audit, you know, we, we kind of look at it, the bigger picture of your, your net assets. So th that's what the difference is. I was surprised to see that um, you had as the second most risky investment type real estate. Obviously, it's not liquid. That's a consideration. Right. But can you speak right. some more about the risks that you see as part well, of real estate? Well, that, that real estate there, that's more the financial asset real estate. So let's say a real estate fund of some sort. Um, so obviously, different sectors of the real estate market could be more volatile than others. Um, because it throws off income, um, you might say, well, that's good for us because that's you know that's going to be generating some income, but still the underlying asset could be could be volatile. But it, as, as as an overall asset class, real estate tends to be more volatile. But in this case, what we're referring to is not let's say the, an investment in a building, but it's investment let's say in a diversified portfolio of other types of real estate that would in your portfolio serve the purpose of generating income, but also being a good diversifier of the rest of your assets. Real estate happens to be what we would call a very good diversifier of your traditional you know, um, US equities, international equities, and bonds because they kind of move in different directions. So they sort of balance, balance the portfolio a little bit. I have worked at an organization, um, I was very fortunate, that had almost half of those types of um, 
reserves fully mm -hmm. funded. Excellent. But then we struggled to convince the donors that sure. we still needed their money. So for the organizations that you presented, how did they communicate to their donors, especially when you're looking at audited financials, you know, those quick snapshots? How do they communicate that we still need your money even though we have all these Yeah, reserves? and that's so why in that particular case that we spoke to, John, you know, when we, when we divided up the various um, uh, purposes and the you know, investment portfolios of each, um, didn't that really um, help the donors understand that you know, we're really taking a critical look at exactly what the objectives of each of those components were? Yeah. But, but both, you know, I, I think having a strategic purpose for your net assets is going to help any donor, right? Understand the organization. In in this example, we could show the donors that we had a fundamental gap in our budget. So the fact that we had six million dollars that we set aside as a reserve spun off X amount of revenue that closed that gap. You know, we, we have clients that have, uh, you know, uncertainty in funding. So to have a program reserve to set, set that aside to say, okay, this is for our rainy day fund. Uh, you know, I think the easiest to explain is the three to six months worth of working capital because every funder should understand that. Uh, you know, and we're lucky in Massachusetts where we have a lot of really sophisticated funders that understand that you need working capital to run. When you get above and beyond that, then you need to explain why. The building capital reserve. We don't want to be stuck, you know, five years down the road and need a roof and have no equity to pay for it. So we build that up now. Uh, so, so I think it's a matter of telling the story. What we've done with our, you know, some clients is we've put it into the footnotes and explained it to some degree. But it's also, the, the, you know, we also spend a lot of time with our clients, not just in the footnotes, but with management explaining it so that we're coaching them what to say to a funder, so that they understand when they go to a funder, this is our story that we're trying to tell, this is why we need the reserves, and this is why we still need your money. And then, you know, we also obviously give them a pretty good understanding that for each of those purposes, we're not taking on an undue level of risk that's inconsistent with whatever that long-term goal is. If it's a five to 10 year time horizon, yes, we've got money invested in volatile asset classes, but we know because it's a long-term time horizon that we can absorb some of the ups and downs a little bit better than what we were taking, as John's example was, you know, taking working capital reserves and investing it in risk-oriented assets. So, so I think I think we're getting the hook here. Right, we, um. we are getting the hook. So uh, I'm giving ourselves the hook. Yeah. But, but Phil and I will both be around after the session. Yeah. If anyone has any questions uh, or yeah. would like to talk about any of that, we'll, we'll be around for the full day. So um, so feel free to, to join or ask us any questions. So we have one final session. So, so, so thank you on that. Uh, we have one final session that that's kind of a, a late addition to, to our agenda this morning, and it ties into our wealth. Hello. Oh. It ties into our wealth management piece, uh, and, and, and it's on. It's a late developing uh, rule that was re released by the the Labor Department of Labor. So uh, in April 2006, the Department of Labor released uh, a new ruling that requires financial advisors to put their client's best, best interest ahead of uh, their own when providing investment advice. Now, we've been lucky enough here, you know, with Joel Aronson, when he founded uh, our wealth management division 10 years ago, that was a fundamental aspect of his thing, uh, you know, his, his kind of uh, a business. You know, w w too often you see investment uh, advisors go into Hawaii because they sold you a fund. 
you know, and, 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 and I think this law kind of talks about that. So uh, Common Grinkus is going to, is one of our new additions here at AAF, although a longtime friend of AAF, but recently came and joined us in our wealth advisor, uh, wealth management division. Uh, so she's going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, interesting enough, you know, Common's a wealth manager, or wealth advisor, but she also has uh, 15 years of um, psych, has worked as a psychologist for 15 years. So, uh, so she brings an interesting perspective to uh, wealth management. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to, uh, I guess, Dr. Grinkus, and she'll uh, <laughs> to talk a little bit. Dr. Grinkus. Thank you. Yes. 